Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Uh, welcome to City Light Lincoln Church. My name is Austin, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're just joining us, uh, man, I hope you feel this morning like you're part of the family, like you feel like this is a place where you belong, are loved, cared for, and we have some fun. So those are the hopes. Man, we've been walking for the last few months in, uh, in First and Second Samuel, looking at the life of David. And it's been amazing to see how these stories, some of them we know or we've heard or known as a child, have been to see these beautiful pictures of, of Jesus and what, what he would do and who he is. And so this morning we're going to see another beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Uh, we'll be in Second Samuel chapter 9, but before we jump in, let me first ask a question. Um, have you ever been somewhere that you clearly don't belong? Like, like you just feel like an outcast, feel like an outsider. Have you ever had a moment like that? Well, um, I had a moment like that about six years ago in San Diego. I went on a mission trip there with Crew, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, and I uh, was super excited for 10 weeks in San Diego, really roughing it for the Lord, you know, doing some hard ministry there uh, and uh, on the beach, you know. And so uh, I'm there enjoying it, and towards the end of, uh, of the trip, I— um, I started dating a girl, and so she said, hey, uh, my, pa- my family's actually going to come into town. What do you think about us uh, going to dinner, having like a little double date with my sister and my sister's fiance? Awesome. That sounds great. Uh, by, also, I was supposed to get a job. Uh, I just decided not to get a job and just uh, play my guitar in the train station and get money for enough for food, right? So I'm like kind of slumming it a little bit, you know, having a good time, just kind of living freely. And so I'm there. Awesome. So she says, okay, well, can you come pick us up? That sounds great. Uh, my buddy had a car, so I borrowed it from him. Really, really fancy, nice 1994 Honda Accord with 200 plus thousand miles on it, okay? Uh, it, the back door it was the kind of door where you kind of got to jam a little bit, you know, get it open. Uh, and then it, you know, made a weird sound, some questionable ca- sounds, and then it just like, but it was my only spot, right? It was my only way to get them, and so um, she put, gives me the address, and I, I, it takes me to Coronado. Now, if you've been to San Diego before, Coronado is a rich, beautiful island just off the coast of San Diego, okay? So this is like, like amazing, right? And so I, I'm, I'm going over there, uh, and, and I'm starting to panic a little bit, right? Because like this is like kind of high class. And then I pull up to the Hotel Del Coronado. I think we have a picture of it. Uh, that's the Hotel Del Coronado, okay? This place is like unreal. It's a world-renowned, world-class hotel, and I pull up there in the 1994 Honda Accord, 200 plus thousand miles on it, okay? So I'm like already out of place, and, uh, and, then, and then her and her sister and her sister's fiance, they walk out, and they all look incredible, like they're dressed nice. They, they have deodorant on, you know? I mean, they're just like on a whole nother level, and so I'm like, gosh, like this is, this is crazy, and so uh, again, at this point, it's just another level of like nervousness and panicking, right? I'm having some anxiety, and then it got even even worse when we try to find a place to eat, right? So no kidding, I had tw- a $20 bill. That was really all I had to my name. Like, like I had $20 that it was supposed to stretch for the rest of the week or so uh, for donut or, you know, don- maybe some donuts if I got lucky, some hot dogs and ramen noodles. Like college students, you might, you might have been there before or currently. So I got my $20 bill and that's what I brought for like dinner. I'm trying to save a little bit of it. So I'm thinking Taco Bell is a good option. Uh, I'm like, I might stretch for in and out because it's amazing. I'll just spend it all, you know? So we're going through it and, and we... Uh, um, literally pull up to the nicest restaurant I've ever seen, okay? They've got valet, and it's the only option. Like, you don't have any other. So we pull up. 
that car has never been valeted, by the way. Like, just so if in case you were wondering, no, that's never. And so I pull up, and they get out of the car super casually, and I'm sitting there, I promise you. The guy at the valet is standing right next to the door, and I'm holding on the steering wheel, close, closed eyes, praying, making some desperate prayers to God, right? Like, do some loaves to fishes with his $20, you know, something like something crazy. And so he's like, he's waiting. I open the door, and he's like, hey, he's like, uh, it's only going to be uh, $20. Oh, sweet, okay. And I, like, reach out my pocket, like, you go, like, a button falls out, you know, some lint. He's, like, in, like, a paper clip, you know. And I'm, like, here you go, like, the picture from the thing. And he's, like, he, like, grabs it, like, okay, thanks, you know. And I'm, like, you got to kind of g- give it some gas when you start it. You know, just, like, just a mess, right. And so he, he goes in. I walk in this place, and it is immaculate. I mean, huge chandeliers, beautiful, rich people, the uh, food smelled amazing. And I, at this point, I'm just, I am out of my league completely. On every single level, I'm out of my um, And by the way, this is what I look like. This is like me back in the day. Like I'm just got my harmonica, my guitar, my flip-flop. I am literally wearing probably that same outfit. Uh, and so I go into this place like everyone's looking at me. I just not okay. And so we sit down at a table and we're sitting there and uh, they gave us an appetizer list menu. Um, and, and the cheapest appetizer was $45, okay? And it's the kind of restaurants where you know they're fancy when they don't have the dollar signs next to the price. It's like just as a number, you're like, that's fancy. That's what it was, okay? And so I'm like, oh my gosh. So they're like, hey, awesome. You know, what do you, what do you want? Oh, you know what? I'm not too hungry. I just think, do they have a side salad option with like a water, you know? And, and they're like laugh. They're laughing. And they're like, oh, get us this and this. And I'm like, oh, gosh, okay, I guess, yeah, I guess we're going with that. And so we get all this food. It's amazing. And I'm eating it. And I'm guilty, though, because I'm thinking I'm going to get arrested. And so we, we go from there. We go from there. And, uh, and then they're like, okay, well, you can go to the next table. And you go to another table in a different area to eat the main course, like the main meal. And, and, and I'm like, and I, I'm about to, I'm about to pull the manager aside, hey man, will you just let me keep my dignity and I'll come in later and, and do dishes, you know, like and for the next two weeks or whatever. And or I'm about to call my mom, hey mom, Venmo me some cash, right? You know, like do so some wire transfer or something, but I need some money ASAP. And so I'm like getting nervous. And then the, she, the girl, she leans over and decides to tell me at the end or like towards that, hey, uh, just so you know, my parents are picking up the tab. I turn around, waiter, give me that crab dip with the little squid legs. <laughs> And I want some filet mignon. You got baby back ribs, you know? Like, like I'm like, give me some of those, you know? And so I just took full advantage of it and ate like I was a king that day, all right? Uh, but it was, it, it was incredible. But at the same time, I still knew I didn't belong there, right? Like I hadn't, I couldn't pay for my food. I didn't earn a spot at that table. I, I just, I, there's so much beyond what I've ever experienced before. But by someone else's grace, I got a seat at the table right? By someone else's generosity, I got to sit at a table that I didn't deserve to sit at. Have you ever had a moment like that? Or you got to be at a place where you don't really belong? Maybe it's a little fancier than you're used to. Um, well, this morning in 2 Samuel 9, we're going we're gonna to see, we're going to look at a man that, that it's at a place where he doesn't belong to. He has a seat at a table that he didn't earn. So it's going to be incredible. I'm excited. We'll jump into 2 Samuel 9 and read verses 1 through 4 to start. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. 
My first point this morning that I want us to see is that the king seeks after the marginalized. The king seeks after the marginalized. Now, let's just get some context. We're all on the same page to catch us us all up on what's been going on. Israel's first king is a man named Saul. Now, Saul uh, was supposed to be this great warrior, this amazing man, and ultimately, he's just not a man after God's own heart. He often leads out of insecurity. He leads with fear. He doesn't really listen to God or or really inquire of God. So God says, dude, you're done being a king. I'm going to actually... uh, promote, choose a new future king, and he chooses this young shepherd boy named David, right? David turns out to be this mighty, amazing warrior leading his people into so many battles and victories, and Saul starts to get jealous, right? Saul's like, that's not okay that David gets all this praise, so Saul sets out to actually kill David, right? All, the, all that time, that's going on, and, and then uh, David actually becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. So Saul, the guy trying to kill David, David becomes best friends with his son, Jonathan, right? So they're going, Jonathan is the prince, right? He's the next in line to become king. And yet he says, David, I want you to be king. I believe God has you to be the next king. And it's this humble statement and this amazing picture of brotherly love. And so eventually Saul and Jonathan die in battle and uh, David grieves their loss. Um, all, All of this happens. And then by God's sovereign hand, he instates David as king. David, unites Israel together. They have a ton of victory, a ton of peace, and it's beautiful. And that's really what leads us to our story, to catch us up on some context for that. Now, this is important because knowing how Saul treated David, again, tried to kill him, makes these verses even crazier, okay? So verse 1, David asks, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, um, normally in in this context, when a new king became king, he would, kind of as a power move, kill off all the old king's descendants, really to secure his kingship, right? So if you got old king descendants, there could be some rivalry or whatever. So you just say, all those guys, they're done. Everyone in line to be king from the old king is dead. And so literally for David to say this, I mean, it it would be unheard of. Like never— you want to show kindness to, to Saul's grandson, to Saul's descendants? Saul's the, David, Saul's the one that made you run. Saul's the one that, 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 that uh, tried to kill you and persecute you and all of this stuff. And yet David says, nope, I want to show kindness um, uh, for Jonathan's sake. It's this, this beautiful story. Now, back in 1 Samuel 20, and then 1 Samuel 24, David makes a promise, you know, covenant with both Jonathan and then with Saul that he won't kill any of their descendants. This beautiful promise, hey, I'm, I'm not going to harm them, I'm not going to kill them. So in some ways, 2 Samuel 9, our passage today, is a fulfillment of David making good on those promises, right? Um, and it gets even better. But he finds a guy, David saying, hey, I need to find one of the descendants, and he finds a, finds a guy named Ziba. Now, Ziba was probably the estate owner or the kind of overseer of Saul's estate and his property. So he says, hey, Ziba, if, you're, if anyone's going to know, you're going to know if there's any descendants left to show kindness to. So uh, Ziba kind of cautiously says, yeah, oh yeah, there, there is one person. Uh, he, just so you know, disclaimer, he is paralyzed. He is crippled in both his feet. You know, like, I don't know if that's going to deter you or anything, but just so you know. Now, stop and think about this for a second. Have, have you ever had a time where uh, you were really excited to serve, help out, get connected, and then you get to that thing you signed up for, and it's like way harder than you expected? You know, kind of a moment you're like, oh, I might have written a check that like I can't cash, right? Uh, I, well, 
couple years ago. I'm in Omaha, going to help a lady move. I go to her house. I'm all excited. I walk in. She's sitting on her couch watching Netflix without a, 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 even a box packed, okay? And I about said, no hablo inglés, and just walked away, right? Like, like just uh, wrong place, you know? And, and, and so it was just this crazy thing. But I was like, this isn't what I signed up for, right? Like, this isn't, this isn't, uh, this isn't what I anticipated. It's so much harder than I had thought. And so David initially says, I want to show kindness. But then if he finds out that this guy that he could show kindness to is, is, is crippled or, or lame, I mean, there almost be a sense of like, that might be a little more than I signed up for, right? Now, um, to understand more context in this too, people with disabilities in this culture weren't regarded well. I mean, they were really one of the lowest in society. And so um, what happened is that they couldn't provide or, or contribute what people thought, so therefore they were, they were meaningless. They, they were just kind of like thrown to the side, and uh, they were marginalized, outcast, and forgotten. And not only were they culturally outcast, but they were also, also had a spiritual stigma on them. They thought, gosh, if you have this disability, uh, this thing happened to you, it must be God forcing that to happen because you have sin in your life, right? So it's like, so, I mean, it's just not in a great spot. But David doesn't back down. In verse 4, he says, well, where is he, right? And uh, um, uh, this, we find out that, the, that Jonathan did have a son. His name is Mephibosheth. Kind of hard to say, but Mephibosheth, memorable. Uh, and, and back in, in 2 Samuel 4, or 2 Samuel 4, 4, it says that Mephibosheth was actually dropped, and that's how his feet were crippled, right? Uh, he had a nurse, she was running, dropped him, and uh, that's what happened to both the, of his feet. And so this is the guy, Mephibosheth, right? That, that David has the opportunity. This is the one guy you can show kindness to. And, uh, and then when he asks, he says, okay, well, where is this guy? And, uh, and Ziba says, well, he's in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar literally means a land of nothing, like a land of waste, right? So this isn't a good place to go. Like this isn't a place you're like Branson, Missouri, you're, you're taking your kids to go. This isn't like a good place, but this is where he is. And I think we have to understand that Mephibosheth's circumstances could not have been any worse, okay? Uh, he's physically disabled, so he can't provide for himself. Uh, he's spiritually an outcast. He's politically marginalized because he's in the old king's lineage and he deserves to die. And he's in the worst geographical place you could imagine, the land of nothing, hiding with everything taken away from him. So we understand that, right? Mephibosheth is in a low spot. He has nothing to offer. And get this, David still pursues him. Isn't that beautiful that the king seeks after the marginalized? I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I've heard this phrase, um, yeah, you know, a few years ago, I found God. And I think that there's a good sentiment behind that, but your statement is false. You didn't find God. God found you. God was the one that pursued after you before you ever moved towards him. You, see, you and I aren't much different from Mephibosheth right? Like, like Ephesians 2, 1 says that you and I were all, every single one of us were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were rebels and enemies of God. We couldn't make our way to him. We couldn't be good enough to get to him. We couldn't even pursue him. We were dead in our trans, uh, transgressions, trespasses, and sin. And then Christ made the way to us. So the fact that David made the first move to rescue Mephibosheth, it reminds us that it was God who made the first move towards us and not we to him. Amen? Like that's the good news of the gospel, that you, you don't get any, any of the glory. It all goes to him. He's the one that rescued you and went. And um, man, and 
Luke 15, Jesus gives this parable about a lost sheep. And, 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 he, sa- and he doesn't say that the shepherd just kind of waits for the sheep to, to kind of, you know, brighten up and come back to the fold. Doesn't brighten up to come back home. No, it says that the shepherd goes out, leaves everything, grabs the sheep, throws the sheep over his shoulders, and takes it home. And in the same way, friends, Jesus Christ left everything, came after you and I when we were kicking and screaming, grabbed us, put us over his shoulders, and brought us back home to safety. Amen? That's the, that's the gospel, the good news. You did not find God. Jesus came and found you. He came in to seek and save the lost. You don't get any credit. All the glory goes to him. And in this, in this picture of what David is doing, we see a greater picture of what Jesus would do seeking after the marginalized and, and, and the outsider. Um, but, I think it's important for us to realize that David's promise, his, his commitment to Jonathan and both to Saul was simply to not kill their descendants, right? Which in some way is, is mercy, right? I'll show them mercy, I'm not going to kill them. But we'll see that David goes above and beyond and not only shows mercy, but he shows grace, right? It's this beautiful part of the story. So let's, let's continue reading and we'll go 5 through 13. 5 through 13. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always." And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, or he called Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my, always at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at, the, uh, uh, at, at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The second thing that I want us to see is that the king uh, sits with the marginalized. So not only does the king seek after the marginalized, but the king sits with the marginalized. Now, uh, track with me. In in verse 5, David says, hey, uh, bring Mephibosheth to me. I want to see him, and I want to grab him. And then if you're Mephibosheth, you're thinking, all right, uh, it's been a good run. My life is over. The king has found me, and, uh, and I'm probably going to die. You know, like this is just what's going to happen, but he's in for a gracious surprise. So he goes before David. He falls on his face and pays homage to David. This is him confessing that he is, uh, David is Mephibosheth's king. And then King David calls him by name. I mean, this shocking moment. And verse 7 says, do not fear. Which, again, is so countercultural. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Amen. As, as I read this, I just felt like the, the profound part to me is that David doesn't say, now you owe me. 
right? He doesn't hold it over his head. I mean, he, he, he doesn't say, he doesn't guilt trip him. He doesn't bring up any of his past. He doesn't make Mephibosheth sign a contract. It's just grace. No strings attached, extravagant grace. I mean, best case scenario coming in, Mephibosheth might have had the faith to think, you know what? Maybe he'll let me live and just exile me. But that's like best case scenario. I mean, there would be no way that he would think this is ever possible to, to come and to be loved and shown grace. Mephibosheth went before David, th- probably thinking that he was going to die, only to find out that his life is now beginning. Um, and, and I think it's important to notice that David tells Mephibosheth, hey, me showing you kindness really has nothing to do with who you are or what you've done and everything to do with your father, Jonathan right? He says it's for Jonathan's sake. Um, and this is grace by affiliation, right? Or favor by affiliation. So you get the benefit of the one that represented you. Uh, you get the reward of the person that worked, that you're affiliated with, that worked on your behalf. So David, he couldn't show any love to Jonathan, right? Because Jonathan's gone. So he said, hey, I want to show uh, um, mercy and grace to one of your descendants, one of the ones that you're affiliated with. And it's the same way with God. With, he, he loves us. He cares for us. He, he pursues us and invites us into his family. But it has nothing to do with you behaving and being good enough and everything to do with our trust in Jesus, right? Our affiliation with his son, Jesus. We get grace by affiliation. And if you look down uh, at verse 10, David tells Ziba, and this is his, his command to Ziba, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, Mephibosheth, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. So one of the ways that David is showing this kindness is to give back, essentially restore the land that was Saul's. And this is a beautiful picture of restoration, Right? I mean, think about this. Mephibosheth, we kind of picture as this like lowly person, but it, it, in some ways, but in, in one sense, he was once a prince. He was an heir to the throne. He was the king's uh, grandson. I mean, it was just this, this beautiful kind of picture, and then everything was taken away from him because of his grandfather's mistakes, right? And, and, and so his lineage is now tainted. His feet are crippled. His possessions have been taken away, but David shows kindness by restoring this land to him. He no longer has to live in the land of nothing. He can live in in, in Saul, his grandfather's beautiful land. He now has servants and laborers to work for him. He now has food to eat, uh, land to own, and property to pass down. This is restoration. But church, do not be mistaken. This was a small gift compared to the gift that David was wanting to give, right? Four times in this passage, it mentions that David wants Mephibosheth, this man, to sit at his table always. Four times. We've got to hone in on that. So, see, the land was important, but the real prize was a seat at the king's table, a place where Mephibosheth didn't earn or didn't deserve. So David took him into his family. He provided for him, protected him, and let him eat at his table. And it's not easy to care for a grown man that's, that's lame in both feet, but David promised to do so. And in verse 11, it says that he did eat at David's table just like one of his sons. This is adoption, right? Like, like this, is a, this is an orphan uh, being loved and taken in by a loving father. This, I mean, Jonathan's son would be treated as David's son, and for the rest of his life, he would be treated just like one of the king's sons. This is adoption. But, but here's how countercultural this story is. 
Mephibosheth has nothing to offer David. We've covered that, right? He'll cost him money, time, resources, energy, and none of those things he can, Mephibosheth can give back to David. Um, and, and yet he continues to love him and care for him and commits to spending the rest of his life for him. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, uh, for the football fans, is, is a quarterback. He plays for the Green Bay Packers. He's incredible. And a couple weeks ago, he broke his collarbone. Uh, and right now, it's pretty unfortunate, right now, everyone's cheering him on, praying for him, excited to see what's going to happen. The question is why? Well, because he has a chance to get heal and get back in the game, right? To continue to win for the Packers. But what happens if Aaron Rodgers finds out that he can never throw a football again? I'm pretty sure that he would be remembered as a great quarterback and acknowledges that, but soon after you wouldn't hear Aaron Rodgers' name anymore because they'd be going for the next person, right? That's what happens because he no longer has anything to offer the Green Bay Packers if he can't throw a football. See, our culture every single day is filled with consumerism right? We're constantly asking the question, hey, what can you give to me? What can you offer me? It's this me-centeredness thing, and if someone can't offer us something, then we don't want them a part of our lives. And I I really, I was so convicted this week. I felt like God is pressing into my heart, hey, Austin, how do you pick your friends? Who Who do you surround yourself with? Do you have anyone in your life that's in your circle of friends that has nothing to offer you? And I was, I mean, so convicted, so I felt like God pressing into my heart to ask myself and to ask our church, to ask you, who are you inviting to your table? Who, who are you surrounding yourself with? Man, do, do you shy away from people that are naturally draining? Do you, uh, I mean, from the, from the people that are always having something going wrong and feel like they're always needing help and never wanting to offer help, do you shy away from those people? Do you ignore their texts, their phone calls, their emails? Uh, Or or, uh, have you just surrounded yourself with this elite country club of people in your life that agree with you and jive with you and make you feel better about yourself? I mean, what about the people that, that look, talk, walk, think, vote differently than us? What about those people? And just so convicted, right? It's so easy to just surround ourselves with people that they love us and care for us. And what about the people that have nothing to offer? Is that, I mean, that's grace, right? I mean, the good news of the gospel is that, is that the good news of the gospel has nothing to do with what you can offer God and everything to do with what God is offering you, right? He's not like us. He's so much better and holier and gracious. I mean, he pursues and runs after us, the vulnerable, the lost, the broken, the hurting, the dirty, the messy, uh, uh, the marginalized, because that's what love is. I mean, Jesus says, man, even people that don't know me, they love people that love them back. That's not love. That's easy. The real evidence of love is when you love people that are unlovable, the people that are hard to love, people that drain you. I mean, in every single person in this room, if you bowed your knee to Jesus, is an evidence of that reality, that God would infinitely love something and someone that is messed up so much and is draining and hard to love, that God would love you. Now, I think it's important to know that it would have been extremely easy for David to just give Mephibosheth the land, right? Like, hey, here you go, bro. I'm not using it. I'm not ever going to see it. Go ahead, go. I mean, it's as if he could just cop out, write a check, and say, hey, dude, never talk to me again. But he doesn't do that, right? He says, no, I'm I'm not only going to give you that, but I'm also going to invite you into my family for the rest of my life. I'm also going to commit to sit with you and love you and spend time with you. And and it's just this beautiful picture of grace. Uh, Do not be mistaken. When Jesus died for us, 
he wasn't only doing it so that we get into heaven and not hell, by the way, right? Like his love is so much greater than that. Jesus died so that we could be with him for all of eternity. Do you see it? It's so much better than forgiveness. It's so much more scandalous than a ticket to heaven. Jesus not only died for sinners like you and me, but he loves us enough to want to spend the rest of eternity with us at his table, in his presence. There's nothing better. It's beautiful. And to all of this grace, to all of this overwhelming good news that would have been a complete shock, verse 8 gives us Mephibosheth's response. And he says, what is your servant that you should sh- show regard for a dead dog such as I? What is your, who, who am I that you should show regard for such a dead dog such as I? I mean, he can't believe it, right? He, he, he's in shock. I mean, he refers to himself as a dead dog and is just, perf- just dumbfounded by the fact that David even knows his name or would pay attention to him. I mean, think about it. Mephibosheth has done nothing to earn this love. Nothing to deserve this grace. He hasn't been good enough, and he's amazed and humbled by the king's grace. And so let me ask you this. Practically, what is your response to God's grace? How do you respond to him? I mean, every day, Tuesday morning, Wednesday night, how are you responding tangibly to all of the gifts that God gives you in your life? I really think there are three options. We'll walk through them real quick. Three options. The first is to receive God's grace as if it's a paycheck, okay? The first response is to receive God's grace as if it's a paycheck. And so basically, you've earned it, therefore you deserve it, and God is simply your boss or your employer. Do you see the grace in your life as a wage you earned or a free gift that you've been given? And I really, I've been, I would challenge you this week when you're spending time with Jesus in prayer on the drive home, ask yourself that question. My thought is that some things you view as pure grace and some things you view in your life is that you've earned them. So your job, your kids, your house, your finances, your education, your work, whatever it is, are any of those things you think that you've earned them, gained them, and they're not a grace of God? But, or do you see everything as just a pure gift? So wage you earned or work uh, or gift you didn't work for. The second is to take the grace of God and never come back in adoration. The second option is to take the grace of God and then just never come back in adoration. So uh, basically to receive the gift and forget the giver. So Luke 17, Jesus heals this group of lepers and it's this amazing showing of grace and they all leave and only one comes back to thank him. Only one comes back to thank him for his grace. And so the question becomes, are you and I one of the lepers that take the grace and run away without ever coming back and saying thank you? And again, the reality is, I would assume that some things we come back and thank him for, but a lot of other things we just don't, we don't. We don't thank him for, right? And the third option is Mephibosheth's response. A humble confession that you don't deserve what you have right? Bowing at the king's feet, honoring him, and thanking him for showing you grace. This is, this is really the response that all of us should have. Who am I? You would choose me. I don't deserve it, and yet you love me. That's the response that we should all have, that we not only receive it with joy, but we also open-handedly just accept it and praise him for who he is. Church, um, we have to see the parallels between Mephibosheth and us and God and David, right? 
So Mephibosheth uh, was deformed because of his fall. And in the same way, you and I are, de- are deformed because of our fall into sin. We're, we're, we're deformed from our original creation and intention, and we've orphaned ourselves away from God because of our sin. In the same way, Mephibosheth was hiding, running uh, away, I mean, distanced from the king. In the same way, you and I were distanced from the king, hiding and walking in darkness. And yet the good news for Mephibosheth is that David sought him out, went into his darkness, knowing his unloveliness and his flaws, and loved him enough to adopt him and bring him to his table. And in the same way, the good news for us is that Jesus Christ loves us enough to go into our darkness, knowing our unloveliness, knowing our sin, and says, I will purchase you back by dying on the cross for you so that you and I can be sons and daughters of the living king and sit at his table. That's what Jesus did. And for David, man, again, he's generous and amazing, but for him to do this, he simply has to give David some land and just say, okay, but for Jesus to invite us into his table, he had to die for us. You see the scandal of grace and how much better of a king Jesus is. One of my favorite things I felt like uh, Jesus had laid on my heart through this past and just got to see is to think about that every day Mephibosheth had to be carried to the table, right? Every single day. He, he couldn't pull himself up. He couldn't get strong enough to, to pull himself to the table and up on the chair. I mean, like, every day he had to be carried to this seat. And it's the same for us today. Every morning, we need Jesus to graciously pick us up and take us to his table, to bring us to his table. I mean, there's a daily dependence and a reliance on him. And listen, you never graduate from it. You don't move past your need for him. We just move deeper into our understanding of our dependence on him. Every single day, we need Jesus. We need to be carried by him. Amen? And so this morning, we get to take communion, and I'm so excited for this meal, but, but first, I want to compare the table of eternity with God, with Jesus, to the tables of this world, the tables of our culture. So first, the tables of our culture. Uh, these are, are exclusive, right? And these tables are, are filled with people bragging about their goodness and boasting about their successes and, and everything, right? That, that's, that's their boast. And, and again, these are, these are exclusive, right? You need to earn your way to this table. You need to work hard enough to pull yourself up by your bootstraps up into this table. You need to be good enough, strong enough, smart enough to get to the table, and every single day, our, our culture puts these tables in front of us, puts these things, and if we're being honest, we want to sit at that table, right? We, we want to seat at that table to know, gosh, I need to work hard and be good enough to get that spot. So that, that's, the, that's the tables of this world. But the table of eternity, the table with Jesus, is filled with a mosaic of people, right? People that have failed, people that haven't been good enough, people that have dropped the ball repeatedly over and over and over again, ragamuffins, people that haven't tried hard enough, worked hard enough, came to church enough. These are the people at the table of God. And yet at this sweet place, the boast of this table isn't, look how great I am. It's, look how great my king is. I mean, filled with with laughter and joy. The table of God with Jesus is filled with humble people confessing we didn't earn our spot, but Jesus freely gave it to us. That's grace, and that's what he's inviting us into. Not work harder, be better, try more, but trust that Jesus Christ has alone done it and purchased your spot for you. He's saying, man, I saved a seat for you. It's amazing. So in the room right now, you may feel like an outcast. 
You may feel like an outsider. You may feel dirty. You may feel messy. You may feel like you don't earn a spot at that table. You may feel like you don't belong in this room. And to all of that, you're exactly right. Because at the table of God, none of us deserve it. We were freely given it by grace. And so my invitation for you this morning is to trust Jesus, repent of your sin, and come to the table of the undeserving. That Jesus would call you into that. And so this family meal that we're going to take together, I mean, the bread, it represents Jesus' body broken for us. And the juice, uh, his, his blood shed for us. But ultimately, this, this family meal represents Jesus' finished work on the cross to invite sinners like you and I to his table. To say, there's a spot for you. I, I love you enough that I've purchased you this seat that you can sit in. And so church, would we humbly receive and joyfully respond to his grace this morning? What an amazing king we serve that he sits with broken sinners. Amen? Let's pray.